morning, I'll just share again what, what, what God had on my heart this morning and how it ministered to me. And I thought it was really awesome. So here we are in Luke, the 10th chapter, Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10. In verse 23, we'll start in verse 23. This is what it says, turning to his disciples, those pupils of his, those disciplined learners. That's what a disciple is, a disciplined learner, one who's entreatable and ready to receive. He said privately, he said it privately to them, blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see. For I say unto you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them then. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Verse 25, and a lawyer, here again, this is a lawyer, or in other words, an expert in the Mosaic law. A lawyer, an expert in the law, in the Mosaic law, stood up. He stood up and put him to the test. That's what legalism does. And of course, the legalism that the unsaved function in, and that, of course, we can, we're not of it, thank God, but in the flesh, we can function in it. And when we do, we stand up to him. And we put him to the test. And thank God that when we do, and all of us at times we do in our growth, I do, and, you, and we all do together. We have, we have fears. And Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, said there were fears within and fightings without. That is what was going on with him inwardly and then around him outwardly and there's fears and there's doubts and there's worries and when we function in those things apart from him apart from him we put him to the test <laughs> we put him to the test we it's it's almost like uh he didn't do enough on the cross in dealing with us and giving us his very life, meaning his life for us and everything he's done is not enough. They, this lawyer, this particular one, put him to the test. I wanted to test him. I want to test God to see if he's going to come through. I want to test him. Or is he going to leave me? Or is he going to forget me? I'm going to put him to the test. Saying, teacher, rabbi, what will I do to inherit eternal life? Meaning he thought that because he kept what he thought was the Mosaic law, that he would place himself above others and think and think that what he was doing was enough to inherit eternal life. He wanted to hear that answer from him. He put him to the test. Imagine testing God. Ooh, Lord, help us. Help me. <laughs> and he, Christ said to him, Jesus said to him, 
What is written in the law? What is written in it? How do you read it? Really what he was saying. How do you read the law? How do you interpret it? How do you do that? How do you interpret me? How do you interpret others? How do you interpret yourself? Your circumstance? Your situation? How do you interpret it? And he answered, this lawyer answered, well, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he was quoting, he was quoting the law in Genesis, uh, in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, quoting to loving yourself, uh, loving God and yourself and loving others in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. So he was quoting what was the law and the types that were teaching Christ who would fulfill it, but without him. Without him. And we know in, Gen in John 15, 1 to 5, without him we can do nothing. And if it's without him, then we function in the flesh, and the flesh profits us what? In Romans 7, 18 and John 6, 63, what does it profit us? It doesn't profit us. It says nothing. In other words, when we don't function in the love that he has for us specifically, it doesn't profit us anything because now we're trying to function apart from him. We view him, we view ourselves, and we view others and our circumstances and situations minus him. Minus him. He said, Christ said to him, you have answered correctly. This is what he said to him. Do this and live. Why did he say that to him? Do it, then do it and live. Do it and think you can experience the life that I am without me. Think that you can do that without me. Think that you can do it. He was quoting him, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 says, if you do this, you will live. All the law, all the law was doing, all the legalism. And see it again. God, he, he allows us in our will to function in the flesh to teach us, listen, there's no good thing there no matter how many times we go back to it. No matter how many times I go back to it. No matter how many times. What does it do me? What does, what does distrust? What has testing God ever done? What has doubt ever done? What has fear ever done? What is fleshly anger in Ephesians 4 and verse 26? What has it ever done but give place to the devil in Ephesians 4 and verse 22? He cannot touch our place, our eternal life in 1 John 5, 18. So he will go after the experience. He will go after it. So Jesus said, do this and live. But then he said, but, but. Now it's very interesting, and we don't do this very often, but we're going to give a little Greek. This word, but, when you see them, when you see it in your English Bibles, but, it is always a, a contrast and a conjunction. He's comparing two things, and, and, and the conjunction separates them. And we can live with our free will, free when we submit to him. 
and are separated unto him. This is John 17, 17. Jesus said, sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth himself. In other words, everything he's done for you and I as individuals, his whole plan, every circumstance, every situation, every sentence of our life, every period, every comma, every dot is all his plan. All of it. Every single bit of it. What can we not trust him for? Why would we bother put him to, putting him to the test with doubt and fear? Doubt, doubt, truthfully, is sin. That's why it says in Romans 14, 22, happy is the man that condemns not himself. This is the man in Christ, the woman in Christ. Happy is that individual that doesn't condemn himself for the things that he allows. What would we allow other than Christ? Wouldn't it be sin? And he, in 14.23 of Romans, he that doubts is damned if he eat. Who's the damned? The guilty, the condemned. Is that who we are in Christ in Romans 8.1? Absolutely not. No. He that doubts is damned if he eat because he doesn't eat, meaning he doesn't feed on dependence in Christ. Whatsoever is not depending on Christ and feeding on it is sin. So we either feed on him or in the flesh and sin. There's no, there's no gray area. There's none. That's why it says in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. With there means he that is not partaking of my love always functions against me in thinking that I'm against them. When it's not true. God is for us in Romans 8, 31. In Psalm 56 and verse 9, God is for us. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. In Hebrews 13, 5 and Joshua 1, 5. Because he's the same yesterday. All our yesterday. He didn't change. He was faithful yesterday. Will he be faithful today? Anything other than who he is. And tomorrow. Our eternal tomorrow. <laughs> our future. He's the same. Well, this is what this young lawyer, very expert in the Mosaic law through the flesh. But, but, this is but. And the but there is he is, has separated himself from Christ. But wishing to justify himself. The enemy will give us all kinds of justifications why we should doubt, why we should fear. All these lies. He's the father of all lies in John 8, verse 44. He will, he will for the, the believer that lives in the flesh, experiences it, he will interpret God to you. He will interpret yourself to you. And he will interpret everybody else to you. That they're somehow, they're against you. Somehow that they're against you in some way. And cause us in the flesh to live in suspicion, and irritation. Again, is there any suspicion in God's love? Never. Is there any irritation in his grace? Never. You know, I know when I'm when I get suspicious and irritated, that is that is God in his mercy saying, see, you're not living separated from that experientially. So here's my word and here's your opportunity now to yoke up to me. He was wishing to justify his self life. 
That's all we do when we're in the flesh. Remember Job? His whole nine-month trial, again, the book of Job, approximately nine months long. Just enough to have a, another baby. <laughs> or three. <laughs> or who knows how many. But God does. Could be three sets of twins. <laughs> Could be. Ooh, Lord help her and us. And all. No, no, we would love it. The local assembly would increase exponentially. <laughs> well, he said it to justify himself. That's what Job, Job, he was offering sacrifices. He got up every morning to offer sacrifices for his children in case they sinned, in case they did. He wasn't doing it for himself because he was living in self-righteousness. That's the flesh. Doubt, fear, worry. Suspicion, irritation, conviction, <laughs> conviction, loving conviction, loving conviction. In 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, God is lovingly convicting us so we don't live condemned in the flesh under the, the enemy, God's opponent and adversary, and man who God loves. And so here, that's what Job was doing as this lawyer was doing. And his whole nine-month trial led him to finally Elihu, who was the type of Christ, Job, in 32, 1 and 2. Let me read that, and then we'll get back to here. I'll put my marker there. And so here in Job 32, and we'll see. Elihu, who was the type of Christ and what Christ was doing in and through him. He was just as weak and frail as anybody, but God was using him without condemnation and without accusation towards Job. Towards Job. We notice this in verse 32, in Job 32. Remember now, when Satan was going after Job, and getting God's permission to do it, okay? Getting God's permission, God allowing him to do that. That happened in the first two chapters. From that point on, Job chapter 3, all the way to 32, you don't hear Satan speaking anymore. And you know why? Because he's speaking through his, here we go, three friends. <laughs> Telling Job, you see, because you're wrong, because you're a sinner, God is against you, and he's doing all these things to you. How many are taught that way? How many times we think that way in the flesh, apart from him? See, we're not living in the contrasting conjunction about who we truly are in Jesus Christ, how he never removes his eye from those that he loves and God loves the righteous. That's Job 36 and verse 7. That is Psalm 11 verse 7 or reverse those. <laughs> God, the righteous God loves the righteousness. And that's who he, he loves us in the son of his love because Christ is our righteousness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. So in Job 32 and verse 1, then these three men ceased answering Job. 
Why? Look what it says. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. What kind of righteousness would that be? Self-righteousness. I'm always right. And everyone else is always wrong. I'm always right. And everyone is wrong. If they don't add up to me, my thoughts, how I think, I'm right and they're wrong. Why? Because self is right. And truthfully, then God has to be wrong and he has to make an adjustment. This is where you get all this bad teaching. So I don't have to adjust to God and his word. Now, he, he and his word have to adjust to me. And this is where you get all this other bad teaching. Now, some are truly right. And help others. <laughs> These three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But who was his righteousness and how was God viewing him? He was viewing him just like you and I in Christ. Christ is our righteousness. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, or some say Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. He was angry, he was hot against Job. His anger burned. Why? Because he justified himself before God. I've done it. I have. I want everyone to know that. And so have you. Make it. Make it even. We're all in an even place. Romans 3 and verse 19. All were considered guilty so that all could experience his love in place of the guilt with, it, with their free will submitted to him. So we're really even. Okay. He justified himself before God. How many times with our fear, our worry, our doubt, our anger, do we justify, give reasons for ourselves why we're this way in front of God? It's, it's interesting. In Psalm 1611, it says, in his presence is what? The fullness of what? Joy, because that's his love spilling all, it's his love flowing all over us in Romans 5, 5, without measure. Without measure. As soon as I get in his presence, as soon as I, me, as soon as I get in his presence, his love overwhelms me. It's awesome. And brings me back to the reality that I and you with me in our true position, hopefully now in growth and our experience, we're more than a conqueror. Through him in Romans 8.37 that loved us. So, because he was righteous, and he thought he was right in his own eyes, he justified himself and not God. He made himself right and not God. And you know, the sad thing about it is, this is just going back, and we will do this. I will do this in the flesh that I'm not of. In Romans 8, 9, but I will blame how I grew up, what people did to me. I will blame all of that on them because the flesh refuses to take accountability and responsibility to the word of God and what has been done about the self-life. 
It's been crucified, Galatians 2.20. And we've been separated from it positionally in Romans 6, 1 through 11. There's absolutely no question about it. People don't want accountability, don't want specific teaching. Christians don't want it because they're too busy and any of us living in self-justification, period. And bringing God down into that and using him and his word to stay there. You know, it says in Matthew 15, 16 to 20, and Mark chapter 7, and verses 14 to 23, it is not that that goes into a man that defiles a man. It's not what someone does to you that defiles you. Even though some of them are really bad. Listen, some things happened to a child when, in that sense, they, they couldn't do anything about it. It wasn't even their fault. But the thing that we forget, and God doesn't, he will use what the enemy means for evil. He will use it for good. He doesn't use evil. He uses good for it in, in Genesis 50 and verse 20. Because the babes were born with what? In Psalm 58 verse 3, they were born with a sin nature. See, it, literally, it's not that. You don't teach a baby to lie. You don't teach a baby to manipulate. And they do. Why? Because it's not that that goes into them that defiles them. It's that that comes out that defiles. And we see it again in Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. And all of that the enemy wants to use to keep, to keep what? In, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the love of God functioning in it so we have joy and then we can experience the peace that's ours because Christ is our peace and Ephesians 2 and verse 14. We have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, we're able to endure. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And the reason is, is because we, we are separated experientially through a choice and we yoke up in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, to Christ. We no longer think he's hard. Luke 19, 21, that man hid that one thing, that one portion that was given to him by God. He hid it for himself and for no one else because he thought God was very hard. Who's hard? What has God not given us? How much more could he have ever done than what he's done? Well, he had anger against Job because because he was self-righteous, he justified himself. He made every excuse. And Jesus, for us, he's done away with every excuse. Well, if I this person hadn't treated me this way, I never would have done this. See, that's the blame game. That's going back to Genesis, the third chapter. And you can go right through to the 14th verse. It's the blame game. Blaming, not wanting accountability and responsibility to God as Christians who's done everything for us. Everything. Well, because he justified himself, he did, he justified himself more than God in God's own presence. Oh, talk about putting him to the test. Oh my. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer. Who's the answer? Christ. Who's the answer to everything? Christ. And yet, without the answer, what do we do? 
You know, I can't condemn someone unless I experience self-condemnation. Can't. So we condemn, we blame others. Circumstance, situations, the way we grew up has nothing to do with who we are in Christ and what he's dealt with. So getting back here again, we go back to that lawyer here in the 10th chapter of Luke, and we see here again in the 29th verse, everything, everything, every way that he was testing Jesus, putting Jesus to the test, God in humanity, putting him to the test, trying to trip him up. <laughs> Why? Because he was wishing to justify his self-life. He said to Jesus in his test, well, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who is he? Oh boy, who is he? Well, watch what Jesus did. Now he speaks a parable. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. Here in the type, we know what Satan is. In John 10, 10 he's a what? The thief comes to what? Steal, that's what a robber does. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. The whole time we live in the flesh, that's what the enemy is trying to do with our experience. Because we live separated from Christ. Something is more important. Some person, some place, something, some thought is more important than God himself revealed, manifested through Christ, and given to us, for us, in Romans 8.31. In Psalm 56 and verse 9. And by the way, God is nothing but for us. Listen, listen. He is nothing but for who he's made us to be in Christ. He has, he has nothing to do with the flesh. He doesn't treat us after the flesh, even when we do ourselves and we do others and falsely interpret him. It doesn't change his love for us, but it certainly changes my experiential relationship with him and if it does with me as an individual it will affect every other person and relationship that i come in contact with saved and unsaved it'll affect everyone well he went there and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him what did what did what did they do to jesus in matthew 27 what did they do him do to him in the prophetic psalm in Psalm 22, what did they do to Jesus? Did they strip him and beat him? Well, Isaiah 50 verse 6 and Isaiah 52 and verse 14 pointed out graphically in the original. They beat him beyond recognizing that he was human. This is prior to the cross. But he knows. And he's speaking a parable. But he knows what he's going to face. And in love, it doesn't stop him. In Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 6. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. You know, that's what legalism, that's what the law, that's what false teaching does. It'll leave you just enough. It'll beat you up. The enemy beat, wants to beat us up with his lies and his thoughts. To blame God and justify ourselves. To think that God is hard. In Luke 19, 21, as, as was said to us uh, just a while ago. And the law wants to keep you 
alive, dead, half dead still. <laughs> That's what it does. That's what the enemy wants. It, le it left them half dead. And by chance, now look, a priest came. A priest. You know, back then, boy, they had all the robes and everything, and boy, they were something. A priest. This is very significant too, by the way. A priest. By the way, you and I in Christ, we are believer priests. This is First Peter chapter 5, based upon verses 5 through 9. We are believer priests. We don't go to a priest. There's one mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5 between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus. He saved us all. There's no other name in Acts 4.12 and Isaiah 45 and verse 23. No other name in Philippians 2.9-11. So the priest came. Those robes on. The priest was going down that road, that same road. Listen, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Getting a little bit lesser now. See, because the priests, the priests, when, you, when we look at the, the tabernacle or the temple, especially the tabernacle in the wilderness, the further part away was the congregation. The middle part, the middle part was the Holy of Holies. And in between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, the, the high priest Aaron and the type of Christ could only go in there once a year, not without blood. Innocent victim, Christ. But in between those two was the priests and then the Levites, supposedly the closest to God. Well, on, likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was half Jew and half anything else. And they were hated. They were absolutely hated by the Jews under legalism, under the legalism of the law. They were hated because they weren't one of them. They weren't of the same ilk. Listen, they weren't of the same <laughs> denomination. So they couldn't have to do with each other. So they separate. They separately functioned for God. They thought, independent of others. That's why. But the Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Yeah, he felt compassion. Compassion, sympathy. The word sympathy means that. I can't know what someone's going through. I can't even understand. I don't know it, and I can't feel it because I've never been through it. That's pity. But I can pity them, even though there's nothing I can do about it, and I've never felt it. Then, then there is empathy. And empathy means that, oh, my God, Lord, I've been through what they've been through, something similar. I've been through it. I felt pain. I felt rejection. I felt hurt. I felt misunderstood. I got beat up. All these things happened to me. 
And I feel for that person. But I still can't do anything about it. But compassion, and this is Jesus, and you'll see it all through the scriptures in Matthew 19, 26, Mark 10, 27, all kinds of scriptures. What's impossible for man is not for, for him. He always and he only functioned in compassion because compassion is, is Jesus. And he went through things. If you read Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, and you read Isaiah 50, verse 6, and you read Isaiah 52 and verse 14, and you look in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of what happened to him physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. You can't tell me that he knew it like nobody did. He knows you and I are pain and every single thing about us way better than we ever could. And he never accuses us or condemns us. Never. Not one time. Even when we function without him. Even when we don't trust him. He has this loving compassion just waiting in Isaiah 30 verse 18 to be gracious. But not only could he feel what they went through, but he's the only one that could do something about it. You see, he's talking about himself here. Not to lift himself up apart from the love that he had for them and for us. A Samaritan was on a journey, came and saw him, and, and he felt compassion, and he came to him. Oh, how he desires to come to us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of it. And to walk us through it in Psalm 23, 1 to 6, he's going to walk us through it. It takes more love, more grace to walk us through the difficulty than it does to take us out. But he wants us to see his intimacy and his love for us by with us leading us through it. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3. We either have a weight or we put it on him and he leads us through is the captain of our salvation, who was perfected through all his sufferings in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He came to him and he bandaged up his wounds. I can't help but think of Isaiah, and I'll read it too. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured in oil and wine on them. Oil, the precious Holy Spirit. Wine to make us happy again. To make us have joy. And he put him on his own feast, something that would, would carry himself, and he allowed it to carry him. You see, he didn't do it for himself. Jesus didn't do it for himself. Did you know? Remember studying it the other day. He did it for his father. In John 8, 29, Romans 15, so he did everything to please his father. And then in that way, he was able first to please his father. And then everything he did was for us. And he didn't even have an expectation of return. But the Father surprised him with a reward. He gave us all to him. Aren't we glad? And he brought him to an inn. Oh boy. He's got an inn for us. In John 14. 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Stop allowing things to trouble you and stop being afraid. Do you believe in God and believe in me? I told you I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. 
I told you I would do that. And in my absence, not my physical absence, not my spiritual absence, because I'm always with you. I'm always with you. Never leave you nor forsake you. But I'm preparing a place for you. That place is that intimate fellowship that we'll have with him in Revelation 2 and verse 17. He brought him to an end and he took care of him. Oh, <laughs> Cast your burden upon the Lord in Psalm 55 and verse 22 and he will sustain you. That's a promise. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. Not the self-righteous, but the righteousness of the love of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll never know. God for us in Romans 8, 31. Who against us? If God himself is for us, tell me, who can be against us? Who's ever won anything? Who's ever been greater, more sovereign, more loving, more caring? He said in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him. Now in the original language, in, that, in the original language, it's this. He's saying presently, I'm asking you presently to think of every single thing that could cause you to be anxious, troubled, or live in fear, or condemnation, or shame. Think of it all at once, not just, and cast it on me. <laughs> cast it on me. And when you do, you will see that I do care for you. Because without my loving care, the enemy is going to take advantage. He is as a roaring lion, and he seeks to slaughter you with lying thoughts to rip you up and swallow you down whole. And I'll tell you how he swallows Christians down with whole, with the details of life and things that replace intimacy with Christ. That's what he uses. Well, and he took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii. denarii. And what that is, that's two days wages. Oh, boy. You know, without getting too much into it, because we're going to close pretty soon. Two here, two, in the Bible, speaks of separation. The number two. We can be separated unto evil, or we can be separated unto God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word. You see. And He was, and He gave Him two days' wages. And gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. This is what he's saying to Listen, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, you listen, you and I cannot outgive God. We can't. We can't give the self-life enough. You cannot outgive God. You can't. I'm talking about our time. Ourselves first in Acts 6.4. We give ourselves to dependence. In other words, we give ourselves over in dependence to him. That's Acts 6.4, leaders. Then he ministers his words to us. Otherwise, it's fleshly interpretation in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It's the will of man involved with the will of God and then preach it. God forbid. Oh, redeem the time, Lord. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Oh, God, this is famousy for us. Everything that we allowed him to do in us and through us and for others, oh, boy. That's gold, that's silver, that's precious stones, you know. Or if we refused it and lived for ourselves, 
that's wood, hay, and stubble. Wood is humanity. Stubble, no growth. I don't want others teaching me. I don't have to come and hear the word. I can do it when I want. Okay. No one's against you. God certainly isn't. And those that are, that are united to him aren't. Stubble, no growth. And hey, emotional outbursts. Whether it's inward <laughs> or outward, he sees it. In Psalm 90, verse 8. He said, I will return and I will pay you. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a true neighbor? You know, Jesus said what? How should we love anyone else? Well, how can we love anyone else? The way that we're loved. Matthew seven twelve. the way that we're loved. Who do you think? Who proved to be the true neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So are you thankful for the word with me? That when we fall into his hands experientially, the word comes. That's why, now honestly, I don't consider it labor. It, there's this labor involved, but I don't consider it that way. I only do it, honestly, because I love him because he first loved me. And I can't, I can't have enough of his love. And, and, and a pastor teacher studies till he's exhausted. This is First Timothy 5, 17 and 18. This is First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. You have to study until you're exhausted, literally. It takes so much energy. Oh, but boy, the reward. And I am not doing it, or any of us shouldn't, for a reward. Our reward is to be so used by him. And it is a privilege. And we do it like him. We don't have an expectation. He is the expectation in Psalm 62, 5. Which, which of those three? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, then go. Then go and do likewise. Do the same. You think he could do it without him? Do you think he, you think he would want to do it without him or could? What can we do without him? In John 15, 1 through 5. And if I don't do it with him, then how do I do it? Because I'm going to do it. And that's called the flesh. In Romans 8, 9. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha, Martha, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated. You know, this is a place of rest and receiving. Details are not occupying her mind. What she's going to do when she leaves. What, what is going to be the schedule for the week. These thoughts are not. No, no, no. She's intreatable. She sits at the Lord's feet. And his feet always spoke of where love would lead him and what he would do. She sat at his feet, listen, listening to his word. Whose word do we hear when thoughts come in? Is it his word? Well, Martha was distracted. Hebrews 12, 2, in the original says, looking away from all that would distract the enemy. John 10, 10a. Looking away from all that would distract you and looking unto Jesus. 
looking away, meaning having eyes, a thought life consumed with Christ. So there's no room for others. Martha was distracted, listen to this, with all her preparations. See, she was serving him without his life to do it. So she could only do it in the flesh. It was her preparations, and because they were hers, she became extremely distracted. And she came to him and said, Lord, listen to what she said. Do you not care? Oh, God. God, don't you care for me? Don't you see what they're doing? Don't you see the pain? Don't you see where I am? Why are you doing this? <laughs> Who was doing it to Job? You do not care. Now, when it's not him, I'm going to involve others too in the blame, by the way. I'm going to involve others, just like Adam did with Eve. He blamed God, but blamed her too. And Eve blamed God, and she blamed his creation. You do not care that my sister has left me to do all the service. See, it's just me. See, I'm doing all the service. Listen to this. Serving what? Alone. Don't you care for me, God? I'm all alone. <laughs> He'll never leave us nor forsake us. The single person with eyes for Christ, consumed by his love, is not a minority. He's a majority because Christ is everything. He is. I'm serving alone. Then I want you to tell her to help me. Those are prayers. Prayers of the flesh. You hint, God. I'm doing this all on counseling God with her doubt and her fear and her irritation and her suspicion towards God. Where's it coming from? Then tell her to help me. Tell her this. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, she wants her attention. He wants her Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered by all your preparations. A lot of Christendom. About so many things. Distracted. What am I going to do today? Where am I going to go? What can I do? What can I do here? What can I do there? What can I do here? You're distracted by many things. Maybe the things themselves aren't bad, but are they bad if they cause you to be distracted from him? You lose focus. The things mean more than him. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good. I don't even, I don't even like that word, part. Who's the good? It's Jesus himself. She chose me. She chose me. Oh, that must bless him. To this day, she chose me over everything else. And then everything else would find its proper place. Everything and everyone else would find its proper place because she put me first. Which will not be taken away. That's the gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. That's the bemacy in Romans 14, 10, 11, and 12. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 10. 
That's famous. That's what we go in and, and feast on that manna with him, hidden. No one else. I didn't do it. I didn't do the service for him for everyone else to see. I didn't do it for that reason. He was the reason. And by the way, until I sit at his feet, I never, I never received the life that actually does the serving in the vessel. Never. It will always be some kind of a distraction, some and a preparation that causes what? Worry, worry, irritation, and suspicion about many, many things. But God, but Mary, Mary, and he didn't know her after her past. He dealt with it. We know Mary. We, do we, how do we know her? How do we know one another? Mary has chosen the good. The good. Later on we see, we see in Matthew 19 and verse 17, Luke 18 and verse 19, and Mark 10 and verse 18, Jesus said to the to the rich young ruler when he asked him what I what I might do to inherit eternal life, Jesus told him this because he said, Good master. He said, Why do you call me good master? He was only knowing Jesus after his flesh. Not Jesus, because Jesus didn't have any. He didn't have a fallen nature. He was knowing he was knowing Jesus that way. What might I do? like you have done. And he said, why are you calling me good? There's none good but only God. And, and Mary has chosen the good part. And everyone that comes to him, him this morning, all of us together, has chosen the good part. And the reason we did was because his love sought us. There's no question about it. And he's proven his love for us. Has he not met uh, every, every, as far as he's concerned, need? Has he not? He's, he's met every single need. And he loves us, desires intimacy with us, and he wants to us to sit at his feet so that we can experience personal intimacy with him, not only now, but preparing us for all eternity, and then to use us, and for us to lose ourselves and the overflow of his love <laughs> and allow that love to flow in us as a vessel so that comes out of what comes out of the weak frail vessel that we are and second corinthians 5 7 is the treasure and lord thank you this morning for everything you who you are and every single thing you did to go through and even now interceding for us in romans 8 verse 34 and hebrews 7 Verse 25 and Hebrews 9 and verse 26. You're even now interceding for us. Before we fall into sin in the enemy, we fall into the hands experientially of Satan, the adversary, the robber. Before you're interceding for us. When we fall in sin, you're interceding for us. And even after, you're still interceding for us because your love in 1 Corinthians 13 8 never never fails. In Jesus' name, amen.